0: Romans, that's the series we're in. We are in, uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, been going through verse by verse, the book of Romans. Romans is an epistle written to a group of believers, and Paul is communicating what many would consider the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel that's in scripture. And Romans is a deep theological and uh, oftentimes rich book But at the same time, while it is a rich book, it's a book that you have to, I think, appreciate verse by verse to really appreciate what's being done and said. And so I think it's appropriate that we've taken this amount of time and care as we've gone through the book of Romans, because there's just a lot of rich truth to it. So as was said, today, we are looking at the book of Romans. We're in chapter 6, and we're going to start at verse 5 and go all the way through verse 14. So... I'm gonna read it for us, and then we'll uh, start unpacking some of the richness that's there. Romans chapter six, verses five through 14. It says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if you have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves "'dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. "'Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body "'to make you obey its passions. "'Do not present your members to sin "'as instruments for unrighteousness, "'but present yourselves to God "'as those who have been brought from death to life, "'and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. "'For sin will have no dominion over you, "'since you are not under the law, but under grace.'" Amen. Amen. Let's pray and then discuss uh, the passage. Lord, we pray that the richness of what's here would be available to us, that your word would be sweet, that it would convict where it needs to convict, that it would comfort where it needs to comfort us, that it would encourage us where we need encouragement. And ultimately, that we would leave this place with a deeper understanding of how loved we are in Christ how his life and death is significant for each of us today, and that our lives would respond with the appropriate uh, measure based off what he's done for us, based off what the gospel means for us. Would we all leave here encouraged, with courage, ready to live the life of obedience? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So one one of my favorite places to visit here in Pittsburgh is the Phipps Conservatory. Anybody been in the conservatory before? It's in Oakland. So yeah, Phipps Conservatory, beautiful place. Um, And the way the conservatory works is they have different rooms that are dedicated to sort of different genres of plants. So one room is the desert room. And in the desert room, you have all of your cactuses and your aloes They have this really giant aloe in there. And it's all plants that you would find in the desert. Another room has a room that's just orchids and, and really beautiful flowers. And then outdoor, they have like a Japanese themed uh, kind of exhibit with a bunch of bonsai trees, trees that you can only find in Japan or in kind of the Eastern context. And then they have, they have seasonal events as well, seasonal rooms where they kind of switch things out. But I think my favorite room in the conservatory is called the stove room. It's called the stove room because they keep it a few degrees hotter than the rest of the conservatory. I think just because the plants that are in there, it's maybe like, supposed to be like a tropical setting. And in the stove room, they have tropical plants and plants that you might find in a warmer climate. And in particular, one time, I remember visiting the the stove room and seeing butterflies. They had live butterflies just flying around in the conservatory. And also in the stove room, more interesting than butterflies, at least to me, is they had cocoons, live cocoons sitting there where they would kind of tremble and you could see them uh, trying to, I don't know if you call it hatch or come out of the cocoon, but you saw cocoons preserved in there going from the process of caterpillar to cocoon to butterfly, it was really interesting. And what's interesting to me about that kind of experience and seeing those cocoons in the, in the stove room is that if I saw a cocoon in my backyard, I'd be like, this is some gross leaf, I'm gonna knock it off the tree and I'm gonna throw it away or you know, I just brush it off if it was on a table or something like that. And the life cycle of a butterfly, as you observe it in the stove room, presents a really interesting paradox. Because something that looks like it's dead is actually just trembling with new life. And if we were to watch in the stove room, I I didn't stay there the whole time to see a cocoon go from cocoon to butterfly, but you could see them. They had ones that were older and ones that were a little more mature, kind of shaken, and you could see that the butterfly was wanting to poke its way out of there. If you were to randomly step in at one part of that cocoon process, especially in the beginning, you might look at that and say, "Ah, nothing to see here. This is some gross leaf. If I see it in my backyard, I'm just going to brush it off, or this is some gross worm on a random tree, and it's, it's just something I don't want to be around. But if we were to do that, we were to miss the beauty that's to come, and that's why I appreciate it about being in the stove room, as you could kind of see how it would go from beginning to end. And I think there's something similar when we look at our own lives and when we look at the lives of other believers around us. Oftentimes, maybe we look at our own lives or we look at the lives of other believers and think, nah, nothing to see here. That person still struggles with the same sin. They haven't really gotten popular or famous and they've been a Christian for 10 or 15 years and their life looks pretty normal. They do the same things every week. They, they look like a pretty normal person. They read the Bible and they go to church, but it just seems kind of boring. But if we were to do that, I think we would miss the beauty of what it means to know Jesus and what it means in this passage to experience what's called resurrection life. There are three elements to resurrection life. This isn't a a holistic overview of what it is, but this term resurrection life, I think there are three elements in this passage today that I wanna unpack with us. And the first one is in the first few verses of Romans chapter six, verse five. It starts with the statement, for if. Now, the sermon last week was was shorter because we had the baptism service, but it's setting the context for the verses that we're gonna observe today. The verses are talking about newness of life, the newness of life that springs up after we've been baptized into union with Christ. Now in chapter six, verse five, we get a description of what that newness of life looks like. And the first descriptor of newness of life is really important. It says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, The point here is that we not all die a physical death, similar to Jesus, although some believers have been martyred in in very extreme circumstances. But the point here is what was described at the beginning of the chapter, that for the believer, our baptism means we are baptized into his death so that we can experience the newness of life or the resurrection life. And the beginning of our newness of life has to be rooted in something. It has to be rooted in the source of our new life. So practically speaking, for you as a believer, if you're a believer, what this means is that to become a Christian is more than just to commit your life to a set of Christian values or Christian principles. It's more than just trying to be a moral person. It's realizing that as Christians, we have a new source of life, and we we receive power from Jesus to live the resurrection life that he promised us. There's a a parallel passage or a similar passage that I think brings some clarity to what I'm talking about today. That passage is in the book of John, chapter 15, verse four. It says this, abide in me. This is Jesus speaking of himself. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus is saying, there is no fruitfulness apart from the vine. There is no fruitfulness from you being apart from me. That's a similar concept to our passage today. There is no resurrection life apart from union with Christ. So the first step or the first observation I'll make about resurrection life is that resurrection life starts with being united to Jesus, or you could say abiding in him if you wanna use the the John 15 language. So that means as Christians, we don't just know about Jesus or know about his teaching, we want to abide in him. Abide in me, John 15, can also be translated, remain in me or tarry with me, kinda stay with me for a long time, work it out. Whoever remains in me tarries with me, that's the one who remains fruitful. Everything you wanna be in Christ, Everything you want from this resurrection life starts with abiding with Jesus. Any fruit you wanna see in your life, any sin pattern that you wanna see stop, any place that you wanna move to maturity in has to be, as a Christian, the fruit of you being connected to the vine. If we have been united with him, that's such a crucial point to start off this passage. Tim Keller, who's a famous pastor, said something that I thought was helpful that relates to kind of this concept. Tim Keller said one time that religious people find God useful, growing Christians find God beautiful. It's a similar concept to, I think, what David says in the Psalms. David, who's described after the, man's, the man after God's own heart, says in the Psalms, the Lord is my light, the Lord is my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me upon a high rock." So David's describing a situation where he's in real present danger. And in this passage, what I like is that David says he wants one thing from the Lord. It's not his provision, it's not his strength, it's not his protection or God's wisdom or God to do something for him. The one thing that David wants from the Lord is to seek him in his temple, to gaze upon his beauty. David found God beautiful. There are probably a lot of religious people who read the book of Romans who thought that God would be useful. God's useful because he gave us a law in the Old Covenant, or God's useful because there are instructions in the Torah on how to worship him, or God's useful because he's given us a religious tradition. If you were a Jewish of the day, you had a religious tradition by which you could say, God gave us this directly. So God is useful in a sense. But Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, Jesus says, is knowing, knowing God through Christ. Eternal life is not knowing God's law through Christ. It's not knowing God's wisdom through Christ. It's not knowing God's plan through Christ. Eternal life, Jesus says, is knowing God. There was a missionary, uh, her name was Jackie Pollinger. Jackie Pollinger has a lot of books about her. She's pretty famous. She's done ministry all over uh, China and has seen some really amazing things happen. And one of the things that Jackie Pollinger did was buy a one-way ticket, I believe it was to China, to go be a missionary. And uh, on her boat, or it was either a boat or a train ride, she was telling the person she was with, uh, as a single woman, I'm going into this country I know nothing about, but I want to go there to tell people about Jesus. And the woman asked Jackie, she said, oh, are you one of those people that believes in God? And she says, I don't believe in God, I know God. And there's a difference. And Jackie lived a really fruitful missionary life. So starting with union with Christ means that we must first see God as worthy to be known, as holy, as beautiful, just like David did. And then all the fruits of usefulness come after that. It's possible that maybe some of us have fallen into the trap of only seeing God as useful The Bible is useful because it tells me how I should live. Church is useful because I can be around like-minded people who have the same values as me. Or prayer is useful because it helps calm me down when I'm in a bad mood. But union with Christ, not the usefulness of Christ, is the foundation of resurrection life. Now, when it comes to union with Christ, I could certainly say that in order to experience or to walk in union with Christ, in order to abide with Christ, that, you know, you should, if you're a person who prays, then you should pray more. If you're a person that reads the Bible, you should read the Bible more until you really like reading the Bible. Or if you go to church, you should go to church more until you're just doing nothing but going to church. And on top of all that, you should fast the entire time so that you really know God. And I'm not opposed to that. Um, I actually, one of the most helpful books I read as a believer is a book called Celebration and Discipline, that if those aren't normal rhythms in your life, prayer, Bible reading, being around God's people, even fasting, that it's good to just develop a habit of reading the Bible regularly, praying regularly, fasting regularly, all those are good things. But a way to kind of balance out the idea of union with Christ along with spiritual disciplines is to remind yourself everything that you see that's beautiful that's awe-inspiring, that's praiseworthy. Everything that you see like that is an opportunity for thanksgiving and worship. So when you go to Phipps Conservatory and you're in the the stove room or the aloe room or whichever room is your favorite and you're blown away by the beauty of the flowers, remember that that beauty comes from somewhere. Or when you're with friends or relatives and you just feel this deep inward sense of joy that you can't explain, remember that sense of joy comes from somewhere or if you see a piece of art and you're really inspired by it and it just captivates you, remember that that inspiration and that captivation comes from somewhere. Or better yet, we could say it comes from someone. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, this is saying about Jesus. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's speaking about Jesus. So union with Jesus, or abiding with Jesus, is not just imagining that one day, someday far, far away, when I die, I'll be with him in heaven. It's realizing that right now, today, all things that are good, that are awe-inspiring, that are praiseworthy, are through and for and held together by him. And union with Christ could be as simple as remembering to give thanks to him. When you feel that sense of inspiration, when you feel that sense of joy, when you feel that sense of awe, when you're around something that's beautiful or awe-inspiring or praiseworthy. What's interesting about that concept is it's the exact opposite of Romans 1. When Romans 1 describes those who suppress the truth and reject God, it says they see the same things we do. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in your thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Union with Christ is starting with remembering to give honor and thanksgiving to him because those who reject God have access to the same world that we do. They they see the same invisible qualities that we do. But the difference is, is that they can't make the connection. It doesn't lead to thankfulness or worship that's directed towards God. So our newness of life starts with union with Christ or abiding with Christ. That's the first step to bearing fruit as a Christian. And our union with him is a reality that we can give thanks to him, like I said, for everything that we see that's good or beautiful and that, that those things point us towards a coming reality. And that coming reality is picking up in Romans 6, that we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I love that. Romans 6, 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his a resurrection like his certainly has implications for the next life jesus said this in john 11 right the one i am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live but the resurrection life that's described in this passage like i said is not just what happens after we die for us resurrection life in the here and now means putting away and putting off all the things that prevent us from being like Jesus. That means putting off what this passage describes as the old self, the sinful self. Now, if I were to make a list of sins, lust, greed, pride, anger, jealousy, and if I asked any random person, Christian or not, do you want your life to be controlled by these things? Do you want to be a lustful person or a greedy person or a prideful person or an angry person? Most people would say no to most of those things. And if I ask that same person, hey, do you want a moral code to live by that will help you avoid these things, that will help you be less of a lustful person, less of a prideful person, less of an angry person, less of a greedy person, would you want to live that by that moral code? Most people would probably say, yeah, I'll try. I'll try to do that. I mean, that's what you see if you walk into, like, a lot of school classrooms, religious or not. There are generally good values that are put up on the walls. There are posters that say things like perseverance, resilience, responsibility, honesty, etc. Resurrection life is not saying that you used to live as a sinner and you lived by one set of values—greed, anger, pride, lust, etc. Now, here, here's a new set of values: responsibility, um, honesty, perseverance. Go, go live by these set of values. Try to be a good person. Resurrection life actually means that those sins that I just mentioned. They're part of what this passage describes as an old self. Sin is no longer just a thing that we choose not to do. Sin is our old self. It's part of who we used to be. Now, there's a really important caveat here that I need to make, because the concept of the old self that this passage describes is not for everyone. The reason anyone can say Sin is part of who they used to be. I'm paraphrasing from the passage here. That sin is nothing. That we're no longer enslaved to sin. The only reason any person can say that is because of the crucifixion of Jesus. If we believe in Jesus, our old self was crucified with him. And then we can say sin is who we used to be. The body of sin has been brought to nothing. Paraphrasing from the passage, we're no longer enslaved to sin. But remember, if you've been with us in Romans, the first three chapters Paul's been making the case that everyone is under sin, that we're all enslaved to sin. So we, did, we can't just come to chapter six and say, well, this resurrection life that Paul is describing is now something that everyone can experience if they want to. It's only for those that have been buried with him, that are united to him, that will experience the resurrection life meaning the resurrection life, as what we've been describing, right? Sin is who we used to be. The body of sin has been brought to nothing. We're no longer enslaved by sin. We can live this sort of resurrection life. And in light of that, I just wanna make a a pause and make a mini invitation. We did a baptism here last week. Some of you were were a part of it. It was a really joyful time. If you're not sure if you know Jesus, if you're not sure if you've trusted with him, trusted in him and his crucifixion, if you're not sure that you're united to him, please come talk to us. Baptisms can and we hope happen can happen year round. We hope what happened on last Sunday is something that happens every Sunday if the Lord wills, but at least more than once a year, right? Following Jesus is a lifelong commitment, but the first step is simple. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the power that allows us to live the resurrection life. I've had the privilege to witness many baptisms like we did here last week, and I appreciate when the pastor or the baptizer says, We might have said this last week, I can't remember, but they dunk the person and they say, Crucified with Christ, and they hold him down there, dead to sin, and they raise him up and say, Alive to God in Christ. Kind of the, the visual and the, the audio going together of what baptism symbolizes. What baptism ultimately symbolizes is that we do want the death of Jesus on the cross to make us one with God. We wanna be united with him. We want to abide with him. And we want to be dead to sin and as we're raised up, alive to God in Christ. So resurrection life then is not just trying not to sin, it's being dead to sin. The difference between resurrection life that's described in this passage and moralism is literally life and death. That's why we die with Christ. That's why we, this passage says, we identify with him in his crucifixion. We are united with him in his death so that we can truly live free from sin. And like I said, freedom from sin is not just trying not to sin, it's living the resurrection life that Jesus promised by the means that and the power that he gave us, the Holy Spirit that was described in Acts 2. So resurrection life is living according to a new identity. It's not living according to a new rule set or just trying to fit your life into Christian principles. And we have this new identity because of Christ's victory. Chapter six, verse nine. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now this is why resurrection life is more than just a new set of rules. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Other translations say count yourself or reckon yourself. That's a more literal translation of the Greek word, count, reckon. Reckon yourselves, count yourselves dead to sin. Now the context of, of how we count ourselves dead to sin, really important concept because verses nine and 10 clearly lay out that it's Christ's death and it's his resurrection or the means by which we can consider ourselves or count ourselves or reckon ourselves dead to sin. And the reason I say that this is an important to think about how or, or, or how we consider ourselves dead to sin, it's because of the way that Satan works. Satan is, you also may have heard, uh, described in more informal terms, the devil, right? Satan, a term you'll see often, more often in the Bible, in its original Hebrew can be translated into English, adversary, accuser. And if you look at the way Satan works, especially in Matthew four, you'll see he lives up to this name. Some of you know the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan or by the accuser, as it's described. Jesus has just fasted for 40 days and Satan comes along to tempt him. And if you look in verse three, Satan says something to Jesus. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse six, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. So twice, the devil, Satan, or the accuser in more literal terms, accuses Jesus in a really subtle way. He says, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, he's coming for or accusing him in his identity. Jesus resists him. Some of us know this, uh, this passage or this scripture. Jesus resists him with the truth of scripture by saying, no, it is written, it is written, it is written. Here's how this may look for us. And here's how we can fight the devil because he tries to play these, these same schemes on believers today. Revelation 12 actually talks about this. The accuser of the brethren, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before our God. These same tactics are the same ones that Satan and his uh, enemies and and demons are trying to use on believers today. Satan is an accuser. Maybe you felt this feeling before, after you've sinned. I messed up. I came captive for that same sin again. Guess I'm not really a Christian. God won't accept me now. I'm too messed up. I've done too many things and I gotta try harder before I'll be acceptable to God. Or maybe I haven't achieved that goal I had set in my mind. I wanted to be done with this sin or I wanted to accomplish this thing yet and it hasn't happened, so I guess God doesn't really love me. I guess I'm not God's daughter, God's son. God definitely does this for all his other children, but he doesn't do it for me. I guess I'm not one. Best, I, I, better, I better try harder, better do better. If you see the similarity between those examples I just gave and the way that Satan tempted Jesus, When Satan tempts, Satan often accuses. He comes for our identity, just like he came for Jesus's identity. And if you count yourself dead to sin, based off your own record, you will fall right into that trap. Because we do mess up. We do fall short. We do have habitual sins in our lives that we oftentimes repeat. And like I said, if you count yourself dead to sin based off your own works and not based off Christ, you'll create a vicious cycle because here's what happens. You make progress in a certain area of your life. You get victory over anger or lust or greed or pride, and then you slip up. And here's what Satan says, you messed up. Guess you're not a Christian anymore. Your record's not consistent. You've messed up again. And if all you do is look at your own consistencies, look at your own life, you may be tempted to think, yeah, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe I'm not God's daughter. Maybe I'm not God's son. Some of us know how Jesus combated Satan's lies in Matthew four. He says back to Satan over and over and over again. When uh, when Satan says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, Jesus answers him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil takes him to the holy city and, and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus keeps coming back to him. It is written, it is written. This is what's true. If you're a believer in Jesus, here's a simple, it is written statement. When you feel that shame, when you feel that discouragement, when you feel that accusation from the accuser. For us, It is written, Romans 6, verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. I mentioned earlier that I really love that term, certainly, because if we're united with him, we will experience the resurrection life, Romans 6, 5 says, certainly. Certainly, certainly, certainly. This is how in Revelation 12, it actually says that believers overcome Satan's works. Revelation 12, I don't have it here. There it is, yeah, I do. Revelation 12, they triumphed over uh, over him, this is Satan, by the blood of the lamb, that's the death of Jesus, and the word of their testimony. If you're a believer in Jesus, verse five is your testimony that we will be united with him, certainly. And yes, we will still struggle with sin we will fight to break habitual sin patterns but when god disciplines us when god truly convicts us he convicts us of sin because we're his children hebrews 12:4 do i have that one nope yeah i do no i don't that's okay hebrews 12:4 for the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives so the conviction of the lord is a reminder of who you are in christ that's why you should live free from sin what satan does is bring no certainty. There's an accusation. If you're a child of God, if you're still a Christian, guess you're not a Christian now because you've continually sinned and messed up. But the discipline of the Lord reminds us of our sonship, reminds us of who we are in Christ, and that is the means by which we can overcome and fight sin. You'll see this in the Old Testament when Israel, when God's people go astray, there's a call or a reminder, come back, be my people. You are my people. You are the ones I've called out. Even in Revelation, when there are harsh words to the churches in Revelations that are going astray, there's a call, even in the midst of conviction of sin, to turn, to repent, and to be united with Christ, to begin to have the foundation of fruitfulness. The accuser wants to be vague. The accuser wants to leave it up to us. You messed up again. You must not really be a Christian. Better try harder. There is no certainly, in the accuser's language. If we've been united to him, we will certainly experience a resurrection like his. We will certainly one day be free of all the sin that's in our lives. I remember when I was younger, we used to go to the basketball games in high school and watch the team play. And occasionally, uh, we would be up on the visiting team by a large margin, like 40 or 50 points and you know it'd just be a blowout and they'd be running out the clock at the end. And sometimes someone on the other team would, would hit a three-pointer, would make a nice shot, and they'd kinda you know walk down the court and like stick their chest out and kinda look at, the, look at our crowd like they were trying to rub it in our face. And we would start this chant. We would all yell as the home team, scoreboard, scoreboard. Basically the idea was like, all right, you hit a three, but you guys are now 40 points. There's, 20, there's two minutes left. Pipe down. This will be over soon. If we've been united to Christ, that is our relation to sin. We can tell the accuser, look at the scoreboard. Yes, I do still struggle with sin. But Christ died to sin. Death no longer has dominion over him. The life he lives, he lives fully resurrected to God. And... If we've been united to him, we will certainly experience a resurrection like his. We will certainly be free from sin and we can count ourselves dead to sin. Not because we still don't sin, but because we know God in Christ. Sin is no longer our master. We can tell the accuser scoreboard just by reciting Romans 6, 5. If we've been united to him in a death like his, we will certainly be united to him in a resurrection like his. Now, all that said, the certainty of our resurrection does not come without effort. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. This is the second phase or the second part of experiencing the resurrection life counting or reckoning yourself dead to sin aligns directly to your personal effort don't let sin reign in your mortal body the only reason we can say sin has no authority to reign in our mortal body is because of verse six or we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin for the believer and for those that trust jesus sin is part of our old life. We have a resurrection life, a new life in which we can count ourselves dead to sin. And at the same time, we have a responsibility to not let sin reign in our mortal body. The question then, how do I know sin is reigning in my mortal body? Well, it says it in the verses. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument for righteousness. There's a lot of this illustrated in the Bible. Job 31.1, Job says he's made a covenant with his eyes to not look lustfully upon anyone. Psalm 34.1 talks about only using our mouth to speak Praise and edifying words, and not gossip and bitterness and slander. First Timothy 2:8, Isaiah 58:4 talks about lifting holy hands and praise and worship to God, and not using our hands to strike one another. Romans 10:5. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news! All of these, offering our members to Christ, are a product of our union with Christ. As we know Him, we grow in our ability to offer our members to him as a living sacrifice, which is a term you'll see when we get to Romans 12. But of everything I mentioned, when it talks about offering your members to him as instruments of righteousness, there's one that's worth noting out. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. I did have it, sorry, there it is. 1 Corinthians 6:15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Now, the Greek word in this Corinthians translated translated members is the same Greek word we have here in Romans 6. The reason that 1 Corinthians, the encouragement is to flee sexual immorality is that our bodies are members of Christ. Similar concept to what we read in Romans 6, right? You're one with the Lord, therefore live the resurrection life, therefore flee sexual immorality. Now, some of the context of this passage talks about prostitutes, right? The kind of obvious one that jumps off the page to you. But in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, it says, flee sexual immorality. That's a more general term. And the Greek word used there is a word uh, known as porneia. Oftentimes that word porneia refers back to a laundry list of sins that you'll read in Leviticus 18. It's called the porneia code. The porneia code if you'll read in Leviticus 18 covers everything from bestiality to pedophilia, basically anything outside a covenanted one man, one woman relationship in the context of marriage. So in 1 Corinthians six, when you see flee sexual immorality, that's kind of a catch all term for all types of sexual sin. Here's why union with Christ is so important. If you've sinned sexually, or even if you've been sinned uh, sexually against in an abusive context, the accuser wants you to believe that you're nothing more than your sexual sin. You did what? With who? Can't be a Christian without past. You see some of this actually when Jesus deals with the woman at the well. John 4, we won't go into the whole story for context, but Jesus meets a woman who has a sexual past and it comes up in the context of their conversation. He doesn't accuse her, he doesn't shame her, but through the context of the conversation, the woman comes to believe that this is the Messiah. And she goes into the village to tell others about Jesus. And she says, John 4, 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? All that I ever did, the context there, all they discussed about her life was her past history and her many husbands. So you can tell that the accuser was probably whispering to her over the years her sexual sin was what defined her, all that I ever did. The enemy wants us to view our identity in light of our sins, and specifically, in this case, our sexual sins. That's what keeps so many people in bondage when it comes to sexual sin. I sin sexually because it's who I am. It's how I was born. It's just a product of me being a man or being a woman. And that's why as Christians, we need to remember the score. If you don't remember anything from today, anything from this sermon, remember the score. Along with abiding with Christ, along with putting forth actual effort, the third part of the resurrection life is we need to remember the score. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Certainly, as we fight sexual sin and all types of sin, we must fight knowing that in Christ, any sexual past we have no longer defines us. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need healing. That doesn't mean we don't need accountability. That doesn't mean we don't need therapy or just a a deep relationship where we can confess sin to each other and walk in freedom with brothers and sisters in Christ. And just for a full... full transparency, we do that in this church. We have groups where people discuss accountability. There is no shame in asking for help to be free from any sin, but in particular, sexual sin. I'll give you an example. As elders, we have an accountability sheet that walks through just the whole life of how we need to live. And one of the questions that we ask each other regularly on the accountability sheet is, are you battling ungodly thoughts? And the categories for those thoughts are unbelief, bitterness, resentment, pride, jealousy, covetousness, racism, and lust. So as an elder in this church, it's very regular for another elder to look you in the face or to call you on the phone and say, are you battling effectively and winning against lust and all types of other sins? Another very direct question we ask each other on a regular basis, have you been with a man or a woman in any way that can be seen as compromising? So resurrection life doesn't mean that we can just coast our way towards glory and be free from sin. And it doesn't mean we don't still struggle with sin. What resurrection life does mean is that as we fight sin, we have hope. The hope is that if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And like I said, practically in our church, we are happy to walk through that with you. Pornography, lust, adultery, Any sin, not just the sexual ones, any sin, if you're willing to confess and be held accountable, there is freedom in Christ and we can experience the resurrection life together. Verse 14, because I'm running out of time. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin having no dominion over you, like I said, comes directly after that, that, that encouragement to put forth effort to not offer your bodies or offer your members as instruments for wickedness and sin. So when we see the phrase, you're under grace and not the law, it is indeed good news. But being under grace means we're free from sin because of what Jesus did. And if we're in Jesus, sin has no dominion over us. But being under grace does not mean, like I said, we can just coast our way through life and never be tempted and never have to do anything intentional to fight sin. I really like, uh, there's a theologian named Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard said, being under grace is not opposed to effort, being under grace is opposed to earning. Being under grace means putting forth effort. It means struggle, it means confession, it means repentance, it means praying with other brothers and sisters in Christ to be free from sin. But grace is opposed to earning because if we're in Christ, the battle has already been won. There's nothing to earn. We just need to remember the score. Or to go back to our example earlier, We need to remember what we're becoming. If you're in Christ, when you get to glory, this will be you, and spread your wings and be free. And I'm not making a theological statement about what your resurrected body will look like. But you can be free. But for now, when you're in Christ, you're kind of in these middle stages. It's a struggle. You're fighting and clawing and and pushing your wings out there. But the point is, Don't go back into the cocoon, don't go back into sin. And if you're really in Christ, you can't. This butterfly can't go back here. It can try, and you can try to keep fighting, you can try to keep going into sin, but if you've been united with him, you will experience the resurrection. And so living the resurrection life means becoming who you already are in Christ. Live by the power of the Spirit, don't gratify the cravings of your flesh. If you're in Christ, this is certainly going to happen. Remember the score, remember who you are, remember what you're becoming in Christ. Verse 14, uh, I really like Charles Spurgeon's analysis of it. He's a influential English preacher, very famous, a lot of people know him. Charles Spurgeon says verse 14 of Romans six offers us a test, an encouragement, and a promise. Spurgeon. That's right. The test is this Does sin have dominion over you? These are Spurgeon's words. The test of verse 14 is Does sin have dominion over you? Dominion means complete control or rule over you. So dominion doesn't mean that you just struggle with sin and you, by the power of the Spirit, confess it and fight it and try to get free of it. Dominion means sin is consuming you. So anger or pride or lust or greed is the driving force behind all the decisions you make in life. It has dominion over you. It's what controls you. You can't even help it. When it comes, you just can't control yourself and then you're accountable for your actions later and you feel terrible. That's sin having dominion over you. Does sin have dominion over you? If it does, practically speaking, maybe it's time to analyze, do I need to take the first step and be united to Christ? Do I need to be united to him in his death so that I can experience the resurrection life? Do I just know about Jesus, know about his teaching, but is it time for me to actually know him and take the first step and abide with him and be baptized? Spurgeon's first analysis of verse 14 is that verse 14 offers us a test. Spurgeon also said verse 14 offers us an encouragement, and the encouragement is this. In Spurgeon's own words, I'm quoting him directly. He says, hope and strength in the battle against sin. God hasn't condemned you under the dominion of sin. He has set you free in Jesus. This is the encouragement for the Christian struggling against sin, for the new Christian, and for the backslider. I love that term, backslider. In other words, Spurgeon's saying, this is, this is an encouragement for you because you just need to remember the score. Remember that even if you're struggling with sin, you are certainly going to be united to Christ. You are certainly going to experience this resurrection life. Just don't go backwards because if you're really in Christ, you can't. You can't go back into the cocoon. You can try, but the resurrection life will certainly unite us to Jesus. Spurgeon's last analysis of verse 14 is that it offers us a promise. The promise is to experience the resurrection life, and that resurrection life, the good news is that it doesn't depend on us. I'll pick up again and read verse 11 through 14. This is the promise. You must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. If you're not sure whether you've been united to him, come talk to us. We'd love to talk about what it means to know Jesus, not just know about Jesus and know about the church, but to actually know Jesus and be united to him. And if you are united to him, remember the score. Remember verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is the resurrection life. Abide in Christ, make effort, remember the score. Let's pray, then we'll take communion. Lord, thank you for the effectiveness, the effectiveness of the cross that those of us who know you are going to certainly experience resurrection life. Let us trust that by faith. Let us not take lightly also what it means to be truly united to you. And let us take this time to search our hearts and see, is it time for me to truly take the step to be united to Jesus? God, would we put our whole selves uh, into knowing you, into wanting to become united to you? Would you show yourself to us, faithful? Allow our hearts and our minds to trust you, that you are, as the, as the book we give out so often, you are gentle and lowly. You won't put out a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. You will deal with us gently and patiently, but you will deal with us. Help us to fight our sin, and to fight it by the power and by the means with which you've given us, and to fight it in light of the hope that we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.